Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula. Thank you for being here. I have an interview with a very special friend today, somebody who has been in my life through farms and food for over a decade now and who I hope you are inspired by. She's been a farmer for over 30 years. Her name is Judith Redmond. And she is one of the founders and owners of Full Belly Farm in the Cape Valley in California. They have 400 acres, grow 80 different crops. And Judith has been responsible for running their CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Program, which I describe in the episode, if you don't know what that is. She's also managed their weekly farmer's market. And when I lived in Oakland, I would always rush over when they had their farmer's market day to get my full belly produce for my kitchen in Oakland. She's also been part of the regulatory compliance and overseeing financial and business operations. So she's had her hands in a lot of pots and also has a real understanding of the larger issues facing agriculture why sustainable agriculture is so important and is their farm is situated right in a valley in California, which has had fires all around it and has experienced drought because of the Mediterranean climate there, which she describes. So she goes into a lot of detail about how they're adapting, what it's like to be a farmer right now in this era of COVID, in addition to these other difficult issues and what organic agriculture can actually offer in light of that as an alternative to really help mitigate climate change and and help us move forward. So I really hope this episode is inspiring to you. If you'd like to learn more about Full Belly Farm, you can always go to the link in the show notes. They also do have internships, as she mentions. So if you are a person who really wants to live on the land and learn more about farming, this might be a great place for you to get your hands in the soil. So before we jump in, I just want to let everyone know about a couple opportunities to connect with me. If you aren't already inside the Patreon, this is a great opportunity to get updates from me every Monday on the astrology of the moment and also be able to join into new moon circles live. Those have been very potent lately. We come together We talk about the astrology, I answer your questions, and then we also set intentions together and do some chanting. So it's a really nice opportunity to connect with an amazing community. In addition, if you are looking for support in your online business, I have a Facebook group called Weave Your Business Bliss, and it's totally free. And there I talk about doing business through an astrological lens and give you tips and different ways of thinking about doing business online now, um, strategy, and I answer your questions. And there's also opportunities to share what you do every Monday. So check those two things out. They'll both be linked in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Judith Redmond. Hello, Judith. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paula. Thank you for including me. I'm so happy that you're here. 
What I usually do is I love to hear from people how they got started on their path. So what exposure did you have to farming? Were you born on a farm? Did you have any knowledge of farming? And like, what led you to become a farmer? I think it was my grandfather that was born in England. Both my, my, my mother and my, both my mother's parents were English, grew up there. And they, during World War II, had allotments where they grew the food because a lot of fresh fruit wasn't available during the war. And so they knew that they needed to grow it. And my grandfather was an avid gardener. And when he visited us, which was several times, you know, almost every three years, they would come and visit. He taught me how to be a gardener. And I, I was lucky that I had other mentors and enjoyed it. I really loved being outside and became very sort of political in the sense of active in the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement and the environmental movement and kind of felt like farming was a amazing way to talk about social activism, environmental activism, uh, the way that we can all uh, impact those things in our own lives and with our own practices. So uh, I'm really feel lucky that I was able to become part of the farming community. So walk us through that that process because I live on a farm and you've been such a huge inspiration to me and just like seeing what you all did at Full Belly and just imagining what's possible. And so we're in the early stages of what we're creating, but you really are in community. You're farming in community, which is something that's really unique. Your farm is 400 acres, I think. So that's like the, this is like a mid-sized farm and you are really doing something interesting. So can you walk us through the beginnings, like how you set the vision? How did you all come together and make this decision to start farming together? Well, we had all, there were four of us, Drew. We had all been farming independently or separately and knew that it was something that we really wanted to continue doing. I like to mention that I became part of Full Belly Farm in 1989 at a time when there was really not an organic movement. I mean, there was really not an understanding of what organic agriculture was all about or what organic food was all about. So it was a very different environment than today. There, there was a little less regulatory pressure, I think, on farmers than there is now. But there was a sense that organic agriculture was something that was, a, was very, very risky organizations that represented farmers like the Farm Bureau or Extension Service or even academia were convinced that organic agriculture really was a fool's errand. And they actually did research to prove that organic agriculture wasn't going to be productive. But so in a sense, I think we were quite idealistic. We just believed in it, despite all of that, and believed that it was that being being an organic farmer was a way to restore, help restore the environment, help grow healthy food. And so we came from these different paths. I had been working at the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, which actually had a different name then, but it's a statewide organization promoting sustainable agriculture and I had also been going to UC Davis and met uh, Drew and Paul through various avenues. And when they started looking for a place to farm sort of with a permanent future, 
we started looking together and we were very lucky. We found this place in the Cape Bay Valley that was a hundred acres that we bought together and started farming together. They had, they actually had been renting it in starting in 1985. And then we all started farming together in 1989. Beautiful. So when, when you say that these organizations perceived organic as being risky, did they mean for the farmer because there wasn't a market or did they mean literally like it was risky as in it may not actually net you better food or something like that? For the farmer in the sense that they felt you couldn't make a living because you wouldn't be able to grow crops. And for society, because there would just be these mad, massive crop failures, you know, you'd be wasting your land and resources. It was, it was because, you know, the chemical industry is so powerful and has such a strong hold on agriculture and on the agricultural organizations. So, yeah, it was just a kind of a knee-jerk idea that you can't grow food or fiber without using chemicals and synthetic fertilizers. Yeah. And just before we jumped on, I was telling you that I just listened to a podcast, which now when this comes out, it'll be 13 days from now. But The Daily put out a podcast about the world crisis of fertilizer. And of course, they didn't talk about local agriculture in that message. But it the message was clear that there's going to be shortages of food and there's going to be dramatic changes because we are on such a global scale with our food system and that leaves us vulnerable. So what you're doing has been really on the cutting edge of showing what is possible. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the farm because you guys grow 80 different things and it's diversified and all organic. And maybe you can like talk a little bit about all of that and and what the thinking was when you started and how that evolved. Yeah. Oh, it's evolved and changed a lot. But we started with mostly vegetables, you know, corn and melons in the summer, tomatoes in the summer. Now we've added year-round cropping. We've added a lot of flowers. The flowers have become one of our major crops. We have chickens to lay eggs and other livestock, especially sheep that rotate around the farm and are very integrated into the farming practice. So. I think our farm evolved a little bit um, incrementally, little by little. So it wasn't really one vision that we started or one plan that we created. It was more a response to successes and failures and conversation of the the founding owners about where we wanted to take the farm. And so it did sort of slowly expand in terms of acreage to a certain point. And then we sort of realized we have enough acreage, we just have to manage it as well as we possibly can. We added to our packing shed, we added solar, but all of it came without like huge outside investments and and massive efforts to grow. It was much more of a, a growth related to our abilities and our learning curve and what was possible. As the organic market grew, you know, and more people became interested in organic food and flowers and meat and eggs, our farm was able to build infrastructure and grow with that demand. One thing about the fertilizer I think is interesting that organic agriculture doesn't use synthetic fertilizer because it's water soluble and it can get into the groundwater. It's not good for the soil microbes for many, many reasons. Organic farmers do buy fertilizer, and so they also need 
some sources of fertility. But here at Full Belly, we have been very focused on building our soil. And we use compost very, very regularly that we bring in onto the farm. And we use cover crops. So we fix nitrogen uh, with our cover crops from the air and it ends up getting incorporated into the soil. So in some ways we are, because we've been doing that for 35 years, we're actually less reliant on external sources of fertility than I think even many organic farmers. I really do think organic agriculture can show you that these external sources of fertility can be minimized. And then it can be done on a bigger scale. I think previously, you know, everybody had a kitchen garden and especially during the victory garden. Up until that point, people were really aware of where their food came from and they had to be responsible in some way for some of it. Most people what you were speaking about before about the doubts around organic actually being able to scale and feed people, you guys have really proven that wrong and that, that you can have a diversified diet that feeds people within a local area. How do we proliferate that? You know, I think now is the time still <laughs> is still the time to look at these models again and, and really reconsider, con, you know, considering the fragility of the world food situation. The pandemic really demonstrated that it was terrifying, but it was also kind of inspiring. And it was very, very difficult for our farm. But it kind of demonstrated that the local food system was there for people There were many ways in which the more dominant food system kind of fell apart. People were not, it was much more difficult for some of the industrial size operations to kind of jump and change quickly. But um, the restaurants and the family farmers and the organic agriculture and the people who run um, community supported agriculture box programs, all of those guys were able to adjust in a very nimble way and respond to the needs of their community. And there are many, many stories like that. And I just think that that's a demonstration of what you just said. The local movement was there for people when they really, really needed us during the pandemic. People were scared to go or couldn't go shopping. They couldn't go to the stores. They weren't even sure they could go to farmer's market. But uh, the local food movement found a way to make sure that people were getting food. And then, you know, the USDA even sort of created those boxes. I mean, they were sort of in some ways borrowing from the CSA concept. Yeah, I I think absolutely um, local infrastructure um, needs to be rebuilt and built and food processing and meat processing, those kinds of things are super important that we build them so that we continue to have resilience and can respond to people's needs and keep food flowing. Absolutely. And also like fiber, like we're thinking about growing hemp on our land and we're really interested in hemp for fiber because cotton is not very sustainable and it's very labor intensive and and hemp is actually really a nice fabric. Our problem is there's no one in our area at all that would be able to do the processing. So we're not able to do that, but it's going to take leadership you know, to get those processing facilities in place and farmers making a change, you know, and what you were saying earlier, it makes me think of like Wendell Berry talking about being able to see your farm, like having eyes on your farm and and what that means to make things human scale. And like when the pandemic happened, we're talking about human to human, you know, the small scale farmers and the farmers markets and those groups were reaching out and trying to be supportive of humans because they're also humans. It's not like a mechanical system over here that doesn't really care about you. You know, there's a lot to be said for scale being reasonable as well. 
Talk to me a little bit more about farming as a form of activism. You know, we're starting to talk about that, but like you started out really in more of a an activist role and then transitioned in, into farming. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, gosh, I, I kind of don't know where to start. I feel like we have recognized with a lot of our evolution, we've started realizing that people really want to come and visit farms and understand where their food comes from. We live in the Bay Area and we're close enough. We're about two hour drive, one and a half hour drive from say Sacramento, two hour drive maybe from the Bay Area. So we started um, in, after we, we have the CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture. So that puts us in constant relationship with a large number of families. Then we have farmers markets. We're out there talking to people. And so we started like a farm camp. And so then we had all these kids coming and learning about agriculture and taking it home to their families and telling them what they learned. And we had school group visits and we had a big festival once a year in October. So, and we have now farm dinners and pizza nights. We, all of that ended with the pandemic, but it, it really did create opportunities for us to better understand what resonated with other people and what issues they were actually concerned about and what farming questions they had. And I think that farming is a really great platform for conversations about policy or the environment or farm labor or social issues. So in some ways, the feeling of being in communication and in relationship with a large community of people who are sort of supporting the farm with their dollars or their presence, but also learning, co-learning um, about people's concerns and the issues that concern us, all of that has made the discussion about, say, water quality, climate change, nutrition and health, those kinds of things, I think... Uh, we have um, been able to um, continue our involvement with community organizations because we have that credibility of actually farming in a way that does have a smaller carbon footprint, have less likelihood of creating water quality problems because of nitrates, those kinds of things. Um, so, so all of us, all of the owners are quite active with community organizations that address various environmental and social issues. Mm. I work with an organization that works on climate change. You know, yeah, I want to talk about that. Definitely. I want to get into that because it's such a big issue. And you're on the front lines of that. And also just for people listening, if they don't know what CSA is, it's Community Supported Agriculture. So you get a box of in-season stuff in a, every week and you take that home and use it. You don't necessarily always get to choose everything, but you get stuff that's ripe and in season. And this is actually how I learned how to cook and was my first exposure to farms in my adult life when I was in my 20s. And it was really a great way for me to learn how to cook new things because there were new things in there that I didn't know about and I had to go look up recipes and stuff. So that is an easy way. Like if you're not wanting to get out on the land yourself and grow that that's an easy way you can literally just go sign up for a CSA and support a local farm because you're giving them income in advance so that they can go and invest in their infrastructure and their seeds and everything at the beginning of the season. And it allows you to get fresh vegetables. And like Judith was saying, you get to hang out on the farm sometimes and maybe you pick up your box on the farm or you go pick up your box and talk to your farmer. So I wanted to say that in case people were thinking about that. 
But I also wanted to like I went to your website and I was like, Full Belly is such a, a revered name amongst farms because you guys have done so much. But some of the things that farms like when you have a local farm, some of the things that Full Belly, for example, is doing to help the environment is using cover crops, like you said, also providing year round employment for farm labor. You guys have how many employees do you have? It's between 60 and 100. And so we do still have seasonal work for people in the summertime, we have to expand our crew. But we have um, organized our farm so that there are there is work for people during the slower months, which is sort of in in our climate, a Mediterranean climate, about six months out of the year Mm. are a little slower. And, and, but we continue to employ people so that they have year round work, various ways that we've managed to do that besides just growing winter crops. Yeah. And then selling produce within a 120 mile radius. So this reduces the carbon footprint, like you were saying, planting habitat area for beneficial insects and wildlife. So when you have a diversified farm, you've got these buffers and areas where wildlife and bees and things can flourish, which we absolutely need if we want to eat a diversified diet. And then just having an overall view of environmental stewardship. So I wanted to talk to you, like you mentioned about climate change, because climate, you know, obviously being in California, there's been a lot of fires and there's been a lot of drought over the last 10 plus years, it's been getting worse. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about the work you're doing around that, the organizations you're involved with, and what's that like for you as a farmer, kind of in the midst of it? Gosh, there's kind of two questions there. What it's like as a farmer, the other one is what is agriculture able to do? What can full belly do? What can organic do? And organic farmers kind of have figured out how to grow food using, as I mentioned earlier, compost and cover crops. And what both of those soil building practices do is they return organic matter back to the soil. Getting carbon into the soil is what farmers should be all about. They should be about getting carbon into the soil because along with carbon comes a lot of, along with that organic material, comes a lot of other nutrients, the phosphorus and the nitrogen and micronutrients and so forth. And those are important. But for us, what we really want to do is get all of that organic material back into the soil because it feeds microbes. The more we learn, the more the soil scientists at the universities learn about the soil and plant interactions, the more they find out these incredible evolutionary pathways and relationships that have been built between plant rootlets and microbes, where when the plant rootlets need certain nutrients like nitrogen, they actually let off signals that microbes respond to and can go and break down organic material. And this is the kind of relationship that has been built up over evolutionary time between plants and soil microbes. And those are the things that we want to use in growing healthy food. So we have cover crops on every field once a year. When we turn them under, we're feeding the soil microbes and we're building up a bank. That bank of organic materials, of humus, of nitrogen and so forth, it gets used when it's needed. That The nitrogen, for example, which is applied by conventional agriculture in a liquid form, is water-soluble and it a lot of it doesn't get used by plants and it leaches into groundwater and causes nitrate problems in groundwater. All over California, there's small communities in agricultural regions that can't drink 
the water in their wells because of nitrate problems. And this is because farmers are using too much soluble nitrogen fertilizer. So what we're doing is using non-soluble forms of fertilizer, like the carb, the, the cover crops and the compost are kind of obviously, you know, basically forms of organic matter. But also we sometimes with fast growing summer crops need to apply additional fertility like nitrogen and so forth. But we do it using animal based uh, forms of fertility that are not going to leach into the groundwater. So that's something that I've always been very concerned about because it's very much a social environmental justice issue in California where um, small communities are being affected by agriculture and their water isn't isn't drinkable. Also, moving all that carbon and organic material into the soil, even though some of it's going to get used by the plants, building up that bank of organic material means that we are storing carbon in the soil and taking it out of the air where it's causing climate problems. So our climate footprint is going to be smaller as an organic farmer because we're building up organic material in the soil. And there's been a lot of research also into this that shows that over time, that organic material does get lower in the soil profile and does stay there permanently. Also, the hedgerows, basically any permanent perennial crop like a hedgerow is going to build carbon because the leaves are dropping, you know, it's not getting disturbed and tilled all the time. Animals, that's another thing, you know, having the animals the livestock grazing on the farm, that's another way that we're adding that source of fertility, their poop, back into the soil and hopefully reducing our carbon footprint. So all of these techniques are now recognized, many of these techniques are now recognized as carbon-friendly practices for agriculture, and they're being encouraged by the USDA program, NRCS, by also the California program, the Healthy Soils program. And these are all programs that organic farmers have been practicing for. These are all things, approaches that organic farmers have been practicing for many years. So I think we can really say that organic is a climate smart, climate friendly agriculture. Absolutely. If you are looking for better ways to understand astrology and yourself, you are in luck because I have a course out now called The Planets, and it goes in depth into the stories of the planets, their characteristics, how we can have a relationship with them, how they may afflict us and what to do about it. You also learn a lot about karma, about Vedic astrology and what it is, where it originates from, how to read your chart. So it's a pretty in-depth look and a helpful tool for you to better understand astrology. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to weaveyourbliss.teachable.com. You'll see the planets there and you can click through and learn more. So I know you're participating on the commissioner of the local fire district. Oh yeah, the the fire the fire department. Yeah, our our, our yeah. So tell me more about how you like the kind of response you're getting when you when you're talking about these things. 
in your community where there are larger scale ag is near you too out in that area aren't there some bigger farms are they are they responding well to what you're saying in light of climate change or how are people responding around that in general there's a huge interest in these kinds of things the healthy soil program been oversubscribed in other words it's had certain allocations of funds that can be spent providing incentives to farmers so that they can adopt some of these practices. And that money, which started like at $7 million, is now up to $50 million per year, although it's, you never know if it's going to continue. But this year, it's still oversubscribed. So there are many, many farmers who are actively pursuing these kinds of approaches and trying to learn more about them. So I, I mean, I feel pretty optimistic about that. But it does seem like that those those farmers are going to have a hard time adopting and changing unless they're given incentives, unless they're given technical assistance, unless we continue to encourage them with dollars, because it's risky. It's very difficult for many farmers to grow cover crops. It's risky to change your production practices. Farming is already risky, especially with climate change and drought and so forth. I really would advocate that we continue to invest in helping farmers make these changes and take those risks and learn new techniques. Do these new techniques, um, well, they're not new. I mean, obviously, probably were used by indigenous peoples too, but some of them may be more innovative now in the way that they're done. But do they help to keep water in the soil, for example, so that you're not you know, worried as much about drought, or you can use less water with your crops? And also, is there some fire mitigation strategy that having these kinds of practices can help reduce the losses perhaps on farms? Or is that just not related? There's definitely a lot of information showing that high organic matter soils, the higher organic matter soils do hold more water. And so it is going to help us that our soils, that we're always trying to improve, increase the organic material in our soils. It does help us in terms of water use and hopefully we'll need less water. But we live in a Mediterranean climate. It's very, very hot and very, very dry in the summer. And so there's folks on the coast that can grow tomatoes dry farmed. They just give them a little water at the beginning, and then those tomatoes send down deep roots and find water. But that's just not an option in a climate like ours, where it's pretty regularly over 95 and often well over 100 degrees and very dry. No, no summer water comes from the sky here. Those practices do help, but there's just no way for us to grow melons and corn and tomatoes in the summer without irrigation. In terms of fire, I haven't heard of any, I'm not really sure related to organic agriculture, but I do know that having agriculture as a buffer around communities can prevent fire sometimes from spreading into those communities. I mean, agriculture, especially irrigated agriculture, can provide a buffer. It can slow down fires. I think there's been several documented discussions, you know, discussions of people who have observed that, firefighters and so forth, have, have, have observed that that is the case. We sort of think about that here in at Full Belly Farm, you know, that our houses are all surrounded by farm fields and hopefully our animals would be safer and so forth in an emergency. Yeah. So things have changed a lot since you 
really established yourself there. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, how are you guys, aside from these organic kind of practices, how are you adapting? Like, is it affecting you emotionally? Is it something that you've decided to pull out certain crops and grow others because of what's the future? You know, tell me more about that. Yeah, all of the above. But, you know, just the stories that we hear from other farmers are that the pandemic, coupled with um, fires very nearby, coupled with um, the drought and climate change, you know, since 2020, those years up until now just have been very, very stressful for agriculture, for farmers. Um, I think a lot of them probably feel like they have PTSD or something coming out of the pandemic. So, it's kind of all of the above in terms of adaptation, but I'm not exactly, you know, in terms of the mental stress of going through all of that, I think it's going to take some time really to heal. But in terms of the drought, yeah, and farmers, I think, and we at Full Valley, we're just uh, thinking about not what can we grow that makes the most money per amount of land, it's more like, well, what makes the most money per amount of water? You know, you you sort of change the way you think about what you're growing. Think about, well, you might not have enough labor too. So, you know, how are we going to have the most, the easier to harvest crops? So we've, in some ways, we there have been times when we've just grown well over a hundred different crops and it has become clear that there's just some crops we can't really grow anymore. And that's all we, that's, you know, sad because we really like having all of the specialty crops and the unusual crops, but with various pressures that we feel we've just had to adapt and change. The other way that we've adapted, though, that I think has been really exciting is that we've now got a whole line of value-added products. We sell tomato sauce and jam and pizza dough balls and little carrot cake when the carrots are in season and things like that. So, and and, and so we, ha- we have a kitchen that's a commercial kitchen that we use for that. And there's a couple additional owners beyond the founding owners. They're the kids that have come back to farm and that one of the things that they really enjoy doing and wanted to do was uh, these value-added products. I remember going to the farmer's market in Oakland and having to get there early to get your almond butter. So I, I can imagine that those are delicious. <laughs> There's a lot of competition probably trying to get that tomato sauce. Well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm just looking at your, your chart here that you kindly gave me your, your birth details. And my next question is about transitions because you've moved from being like day to day on the farm more towards being retired. So, you know, what I'm seeing in your chart is that you moved into a new cycle from one period of Saturn, which is a 19 year period into Mercury. And that's going to be lasting until you're 79. But Mercury is an interesting planet because it's very youthful and it causes you to become a spokesperson. So here you are on my podcast, like talking about this farm and, and sort of coming into a new role, which is like speaking about the legacy and, and helping guide the vision more so than doing the labor part. What I'm curious about is how do you have a community farm? How do you transition on a community farm? And like a lot of farmers never retire, you know, like how does that, how does that work? And, yeah. and maybe it's the secret is being part of a community on a farm that allows you to do that. Is that the case? Well, that's super exciting that my moving away from my, my shift away from full-time farming corresponds with a little shift in my chart. That's really cool to find out. I feel like after shifting away from being a full-time full belly farmer, I've taken on a few other 
opportunities, working with nonprofit organizations that I really respect. But it's meant that my life, my days are just much, much more flexible. And I'm still living here at the farm. I'm still working part time and interacting with the farm. And I hope that that continues. I'm still eating the food from the farm, which is super important to me. But my mind has been allowed to open up from that sort of daily stress. I think a lot about it as um, that, you know, for like 30 some years, and certainly the, the since the pandemic, it's sort of the daily um, experience is one of responding continuously to the moment, responding to fires and putting them out, responding to people's needs and helping them, responding to problems that have come up or questions that have come up. And that gives you very little ability to envision things or increase your capacity or bandwidth or build new relationships because you're so focused on the day-to-day that that transition, I think, will mean, and I've already just felt that it allows me, and it's still very new, so who knows where it's going to go, but it just will allow, allow me something that I think really everyone needs, which is to just shed that stress of responding every moment to people's needs and emergencies and trying to think a little more strategically. So do you think like without the community effort, do you think it would have been possible to build what you guys have built? Because it's it's so intricate and so unique and so much land. And there's so many like you're you're dealing with so many different facets and, and like a whole team of people working with you and yeah, <laughs> COVID like, and climate yeah. change and all yeah. the things. I think that bringing multiple voices into decisions is really important and it's a skill that you have to learn. You know, it's not something that we grow up learning. And in fact, I think we all have a vision of leadership that is usually one person. You say leadership, you come up with this image of a person at the top of a hierarchy. And I think that I've had the luck of working with some rock stars, people who are incredible. And each of us brings different priorities and different processes and different ways of solving problems to the group. And we, I think, somehow figured out how to honor all of those perspectives as we made decisions about what was going to happen to the farm. And I know that most folks wouldn't choose that as a way to build a business, but I see it as a way to build a resilient business with deep integrity and a strong power to influence other people. So I really believe that it's something that we should consider in terms of building institutions for the future. People need to learn to work together. Very much so. I've I've been thinking a lot about this because I believe in collaboration instead of competition. And so how do you help people lift each other up, bring each other into your work, help inspire each other, share information? So it's, it's similar, except... I'm an entrepreneur, but I, you know, like to collaborate with other people so that I'm not just here alone sitting on my farm while my husband is mostly the farmer, you know, outside. <laughs> so I appreciate you saying that. I feel like emerging from this unique way of doing organic agriculture is also, it's like seeded in there, this really beautiful structure of working together and, and communication and community really at the center of it. So thank you for, for sharing. 
What are you focused on right now that's really important to you? Do you want to share anything that's really close to your heart or that you've been working on in California agriculture that you think would be good to share? You know, I just finished a project. I'm still working on a number of different projects. So there's nothing sort of in particular that's different from what we've already discussed. The farm is undergoing some changes in personnel. And so I'm helping to to manage that transition because it's actually a fairly big one. I'm getting to know and have the opportunity to work with some organizations that I haven't really gotten to know before. So I'm kind of thinking a lot about how my voice or my skills could best be put to use, you know, marshaled in this world of um, sustainable agriculture that we now face with these multiple stressors that are going to challenge us to the limits, really, as the decade continues. So I'm really not sure what I'm going to choose to do. Well, what does it mean to you to live in your purpose? Because that's really the topic of this podcast. So maybe you can share just kind of having followed through your path of life, the way that you've just talked about, what does that mean to you now? Well, you know, I think probably it means different things in your, it has meant different things to me as I've moved through my life. At this point, having spent those over three decades with every moment my focus on Full Belly Farm, I can now take a step away and think a little bit that that I actually helped to create, that I can recognize the skills that I have um, and try to marshal them to u- use in other areas. I mean, I just feel a little more of a sense of who I am, I think, as rather than just being in the, you know, the day-to-day maelstrom of it, I'm actually able to take a step away and and recognize that they actually there were some skills that I had that I offered and that I utilized that were, ben- were, were part of the reason that Full Belly Farm became what it did become. I don't think you really realize that when you're just in the trenches, right? Because you're just doing your very best every single day, bringing your best self to the day. But when I take a step away, I, I realize I'm sort of taking stock of what I have actually learned and what I've brought to this farm. And um, it's given me a, a little more of a perspective on who I actually am, I think. So maybe it's easier to know what it means to live in your purpose when you take a little step back in space. <laughs> For me, I think, yeah, yeah, I think it probably does. I mean, I don't think I've had much time for reflection for the entire time that I've been at Full Belly. Yeah, farming. It's a lot, right? (laughs) It's a lot. It's like nonstop. So thank goodness we have farmers who are bringing us the delicious food and being grateful for that every single time we cook. I invite everybody who's listening to do just be grateful that you have this beautiful food in front of you and thank your farmers because they work very, very hard. So I have some rapid fire questions if you're open to that. Sure. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? I think I had mentors early on that taught me about empathy, observing other people before I spoke or came to conclusions. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? Breathing. I find that one of the roles that I've played has been to help other people who are very anxious get a little more grounded. And the best way to do that is to have a moment of silence. What is your favorite hot beverage? I'm a tea drinker. I told you I was from England. I drink tea. (laughs) 
Do you have a kind that you like? I'm drinking um, a lot of Japanese Japanese black tea that I have that I like. Beautiful. So what would be your last meal on earth? Something simple like a soup made with really good broth and some greens in it. A little green Mm. garlic and some greens. Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable for you? Well, that's a great question because it sure has changed since I, I have this additional flexibility in my schedule. And my morning routine now is have a cup of tea and uh, look at the news and maybe, you know, read a few things just to sit quietly. Mm-hmm. I don't have to rush anywhere and be anywhere usually now within a second after getting out of bed. So I do have a, a gentler routine than I used to. Tell us about a person who inspires you and why. There's quite a few people that inspire me, but right now I've been lately just listening to this uh, fellow named Wade Davis, who is a, do you know who he is? He's I've a, heard his name. He's a, um, a photographer and uh, uh, explorer and a writer who um, explored the, the earth and learned a lot about biodiversity of culture on the earth and is interested in preserving various different cultures. Uh, he, he's written books about uh, explorations. And I think I'm, and he's, a, he's an amazing uh, speaker and writer. And I think I'm inspired by his uh, spirit of adventure and exploration right now. And his fearlessness I, I, I mean, I think that's because I've been doing both uh, exploring um, by taking very, very, you know, much longer hikes than I used to, but also exploring new, new subjects and thought patterns. And we'll put that in the show notes as, as well so that people can find it. Tell us something that people might not know about you. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that I am the uh, president of the, the chair of the local fire district. I'm um, the chair of their commissioners that that people might not know that people might not know that I'm a really avid hiker. I mean, mostly people think of have known me as a farmer, but I'm a, a, a real hiker too. I like to hike. I think that if I hadn't been lucky enough to find a successful farming career, uh, I would have had to find something that was outside, making bringing me outside. I really need to be outside uh, in order to have a strong mental state. It's interesting because you're also ruled by Mars. So you have the, the energy of Mars is to use your body somehow and be out in the world, you know, and it's aspected by Jupiter, who's the great graceful wisdom planet, you know, so your smile, you know, is representing that, you know, like you have this quality of like, being very outside in the world and physical and movement, but also just like grace and being able to (laughs) sit and be present like you were talking about and just hold some silence while somebody who's anxious just calms down. So um, it's a beautiful thing. What are you reading right now? Do you want to share with us some books or even podcasts or anything that you think would be helpful for people as they listen to this? Maybe if they want to dig deeper. Well, I do listen to the daily, the New York Times podcast once in a while. I, I enjoy that. I actually happen to be reading a book by Wade Davis. That's probably why it was top of my mind. It's called Into the Silence. I love reading um, Isabel Allende. She's someone who I've always enjoyed reading. Beautiful. So what is one thing that's bringing you joy right now? Oh, probably my dog. <laughs> I, have a, I have a one and a half year old Vishla and she's um, lots of full of life and full of happiness and loves other people and is um, old enough that I, I'm not having to spend quite as much effort getting her to be trained and be a good dog and uh, getting to enjoy her even more. 
we have an eight month old puppy. So I'm on the other side of that. And I'm, you're just expanding my mind right now for what it can look like after she's trained. (laughs) So thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we close up and also tell us where we can find more information about full belly? Well, Full Belly, yeah, it's easy to find um, them on the website. And we have a pretty good website that's easy to find and full of information. There's uh, one of the things that we do is write a weekly newsletter. And the weekly newsletters are all accessible there on the website. And they're about many different subjects that are close to us. So I I think that's the best way to learn about us is to look at some of those older newsletters. I hope that I can just pass on that people who are interested in food and farming, especially if they're younger, just trust it as a a vocation that is incredibly rewarding and incredibly important to our world. And so anyone who wants to, to get into agriculture, I would just really encourage them to keep exploring that. And are you, you're still having interns and things on the farm? That was something that... Yeah. Yeah, we still have interns. At the moment, we have five amazing interns here at the farm. So yeah, you guys are providing opportunities for the next generation as well. So if anyone who's listening is interested, you can check out their website. We'll have that in the show notes as well. And Judith, it was so lovely having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Yes, I enjoyed speaking, talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect soon on a future episode.